Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast. Today on the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast, I'm talking to Jessica Ling. Jessica Ling is a queer second-generation Taiwanese-Chinese-American with 15-plus years' experience in holistic health. Her dedication to healing comes from her lifelong struggle with chronic illness and her experiences as a survivor of sexual and domestic abuse. She's a certified yoga teacher and teaches with an emphasis on body inclusivity and decolonization. Her current studies also include Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine passed down through her family. She has a BA in art from Scripps College and is the founder of the SoCal Zinfest, Zinefest, Zinefest? Zinefest. <laughs> Zinefest, thank you. Formerly known as Panoma Zinefest. In her free time, Jessica enjoys hiking, foraging, and photographing cats in her neighborhood. I think that's so cute. I love, <laughs> I love all of those things. And when I read your bio, I feel a lot of kinship because I've got a, a similar story. And um, you and I have been like back and forth and sharing things on social media. I really love your social media presence. I love the joy and the exploration that you share. And I think it's important for us to see lots of different well health and well wellness professionals on the platform. So welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to kind of get to actually talk to you. I know, like you said, we've been kind of chatting back and forth and I've heard your voice through, you know, your books and things, but it's, it's different chatting, right? One-on-one. Yeah. And even though we're over, uh, you know, the interwebs, there's still a certain amount of energy that can happen, like a certain connection that can happen because for the past two years, a lot of us have been, uh, face-to-face and wellness spaces through this medium. And so how did you, take the plunge because from what I see from what you share and what I've read from your bio and your philosophy on life, you are really connected to helping people who are generally, or as I like to say, historically excluded from wellness spaces. And it's important to see somebody who represents something other than, and I'm just going to say it, white women wellness. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, I'm really lucky, I think, that I am uh, on Tonga land in SoCal in what's known as Los Angeles. And so I did grow up with a little more diversity than maybe some other folks. Um, So I think it's something that I grew up seeing, you know, in my elementary school class. I was definitely like one of two Asians, but there were other people that were not white. And so I think in terms of the yoga space, I'm also lucky because I did train with, yes, a white man, but also a brown woman. And when I did my yoga teacher training, it was actually a pretty diverse group of folks, Um, you know, black, Latinx, Asian, um, mostly East Asian, I want to say, also South Asian, actually, sorry. And um, so again, just like giving credit to just luck and chance that I did have that, um, that I myself didn't earn, to be honest, right? Like I'm a U.S. citizen, and I didn't earn that privilege, so I think that um, a lot of that just kind of came about, and then also, you know, knowing that that is kind of what I grew up with, also intentionally seeking that out as an adult, and, you know, being aware of the spaces that I'm in, and the people I choose to spend time with. That's, I think that's important. I think 
the ability or the opportunity to study with other folks of color or be surrounded by other folks of color, managing their own wellness is a great example for all of us. And I've actually really been seeking that out because I, I was always feeling uncomfortable in yoga spaces and in wellness spaces because usually I'm the odd person out. And I had a very similar experience to you with our um, teacher training. I'm here in uh, Essex County. Anashawabi land, uh, the Ojibwe unceded territories. And it was wonderful to go across the river, which is still the same area, and study in Detroit. And in my yoga teacher training, my uh, leader in the yoga teacher training uh, was or is queer. She now lives in Arizona. Uh, we had people with disabilities in the class. We had people of all shapes and sizes. And for once in a yoga space, I wasn't the only black person. So that was like the first ever experience that I had ever been where I, where I wasn't the only black person. And that being able to go across to Detroit has given me a lot of opportunities to practice with people who look like me. But I'm going to be honest with you. I very rarely see uh, East Asian folks in wellness spaces. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is like a lot of stigma around mental health and wellness. And even in my own family, you know, people ask, oh, do your parents do yoga? Like, did they grow up like, you know, with all this stuff? And I'm like, no, my parents are atheists. They don't like religion. They don't, they would tell me, you know, depression doesn't exist, all these kinds of things. Oh. And I'm actually the first one born in America in my family. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, for a lot of people, they're just trying to survive. So Things like yoga, asana, meditation, breath work, um, the, you know, pranayama, all of that just seems like a luxury they cannot afford. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think there's also the language barrier, which I think we forget about in accessibility spaces where mm -hmm. we talk about accessibility physically. But what about English language learners, people who have accents, people who are blind or deaf, things like that. And so... I think that really just, um, you know, keeps people out. And also, I think that a lot of people feel that it's kind of like a white space. And I'm always having to tell people, hey, actually, and to a lot a of my space. black clients, I say, you know, actually, there is a huge history, a rich history of yoga from Kemet in Africa. And, um, you know, there's Kemetic yoga teachers that I like to amplify. So I think that... Um, all of that history and strife and struggle is a lot of the reason why it's still not um, that popular. And, you know, yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's getting a little better maybe, but again, I, I am in SoCal. It's pretty diverse. I can't speak for everyone. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful, but with realism in mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad to see uh, faces and voices like yours disrupting the yoga space. And it certainly has come a long way in the 20 years that I've been teaching professionally, like online outside of my own city. Um, it has really grown and blown up. And it's really exciting to see a lot of different voices and different faces. When I first jumped on the uh, Instagram, it was all very homogeneous. And it's always nice to flip through my feed and see so many different people in the wellness space. Tell me, how did you begin your journey to become a professional wellness coach, somebody who's out there in the community sharing and encouraging folks of color to come to um, a space where they could explore their own wellness or well-being. 
Yeah, so I think um, I have a couple different answers to that. So one, I always kind of um, push back or, or reflect on what does it mean to be a professional in the wellness space? Who's giving out the certificates? You know, this is not a new idea. It's not my own idea, right? Who's the one saying, hey, like you have approval to be a yoga teacher? Um, and I think that, um, you know, uh, Jaisal and Thajal talk about this on their podcast. So shout out to them that they have addressed this before. And so kind of my long-winded way of saying that this is for me, I think, a long time practice since I was a kid, actually. And so the, um, I guess, more linear answer is in elementary school, I struggled with sleepwalking and sleep talking. So I went on the internet, my little desktop computer in the 90s or 2000s, maybe. I think it was the 90s, I want to say. And um, I looked up, you know, what can help with that. And the answers were yoga, meditation, therapy. So I told my parents that I needed help. I was really struggling with anger management. I really just couldn't manage my emotions. I just was so angry all the time and it didn't feel... um, natural or, or normal. I think even then I could, I knew that it was at an abnormal, unhealthy level. And so they, you know, didn't believe in therapy or any of that, especially for a young kid, but they were, unfortunately, um, I don't know if this needs a trigger warning. They were, they are fat phobic. So they were like, Oh, yoga exercise. Like we can, you know, we're okay with you doing this so you can like lose weight or maintain Ooh, or whatever. Right. So they did yep. let me start doing yoga classes. My first one was with my mom up in um, this bougie area of the neighborhood, um, probably a lot of white folks. And uh, I like to be very transparent in telling folks that actually I found it really boring. And I think ah. that's okay to share because there's this idea that, oh, we have to feel like lightened and, oh my God, I feel so relaxed. And every time I teach, I say, hey, you know what? Like, this is not a toxic positivity space. Sometimes meditation is boring or we feel anxious or scared or the fact that we're actually sitting with our feelings, now we're actually acknowledging things that we've been pushing aside to get through the day, Um, it's not always going to feel great. So for me, that was kind of my beginning. And, um, you know, people again ask, oh, how long have you been doing this for a living? Or how long have you been doing this? Again, I've always held space for people in my classes. People would ask me for advice and things like that. And I was always the one, just, you know, the go-to for people's emotions um, in my family, at school, etc. But under capitalism, which is what people are really asking, when did you start doing this for money? Right. Um, I would say around uh, 2015, um, mm-hmm. my junior year of college. And I started my yoga teacher training before that, but I was in high school doing the college apps, volunteering, all of that stuff. Um, and so that I wasn't working at the same time just because um, my parents wanted me to focus on school, which, again, you know, I'm going to say this like every I think about this every hour of every day. I had the privilege to not have to work while I was in school. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of um, the gist of the answer to your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. That, I, that gives me a lot of insight. And for those of you who are not familiar with Thajel and Jaisal's work, it's the Yoga is Dead podcast. I got to tell you, please go and support that podcast. I had the wonderful opportunity of speaking to both of them, be a part of their Patreon. It's really important to uplift um, all voices of color in this space, but especially South Asian voices, which regularly get left behind in the space, which is really interesting seeing as the entire practice of yoga is steeped in the culture and is that 
has its roots in that, and that's the origin. So it's really important. You can have, find out some very interesting things from their podcast, and some of it may make you stop and think. Some of it will make you angry, I'm sure, if you're not familiar with how folks of color are treated in the yoga space and, and in the wellness spaces. So that's why we're talking today to Jess Ling about her work within the wellness spaces, especially when we're talking about folks with... Um, trauma and folks that are coming into spaces who might not see themselves represented. I just had a really interesting conversation with my yoga class uh, yesterday about how meditation can be and mindfulness can be triggering for folks mm -hmm. who are activating for folks who have had trauma and then we ask them to sit and sometimes what ends up happening is you replay that trauma over and over again when you're sitting in those spaces so like you said jess around oh i felt so good oh you know this was an enlightening experience or whatever your first experience was not that and i tell people the same thing all the time if your first experience of yoga is not life-changing it doesn't mean that the yoga isn't working it means that perhaps we need to take a little bit more time in self-reflection maybe Maybe we need to move a little bit slower. Maybe there's lots of things that might keep us from diving into the practice. But one thing I do know uh, for folks who come into the meditation space, sometimes sitting in that stillness can take you to a place that can be really harmful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that when I talk to folks about it, the kind of, you know, just first acknowledging that that happens is really reassuring for folks. And they realize, oh, I'm not doing it wrong. And, you know, I kind of like to say there's no right or wrong way to do it. I also like to invite people to, you know, kind of regulate their nervous system through other ways. So I say, you know, it's fine to fidget. We don't have to be robots on the front of the screen. Um, I invite folks to bring a blanket, a stuffed animal, um, anything that they need, maybe a fidget toy. Um, also things like, you know, you can have your cameras off, which is kind of a great thing about being online is, yeah. I think a lot of folks do have social anxiety and don't necessarily want to be perceived all the time, especially um, at least for me as a woman, as someone who's curvy, I'm perceived all the time. I'm objectified, sexualized. And so maybe people don't want to be seen and they just want to be a blank screen. Um, so I think a lot of that does help with the trauma. Um, and I do check in with people um, beforehand, individually asking if they have accessibility needs and also asking afterwards if people had feedback. So um, there's definitely a lot we can do as yoga teachers, uh, health professionals, humans, uh, yeah. to be flexible, accommodating, and then also to give ourselves grace because uh, the fact is that we can't be inclusive of every single thing. Like I only know so many languages, so I may have to refer people out. Um, you know, I you know have so many, again, uh, identities that I don't carry. And so it may just be best for me to say, hey, actually, there's this other person that would be a better fit. So I could really talk about that for hours and hours. But those are, you know, kind of what came to mind when I heard you speak. Absolutely. And I think part of being adaptive and inclusive and equitable is knowing where your limitations are and knowing when you need to refer someone out. I really think that we get this idea as, um, you know, wellness, I hate to use the word wellness professional, but people who support other people's wellness, 
right? I think we think this idea that we have to be all things to all people. And that's a couple of things. I think that's linked to the patriarchy. And I think that's linked to capitalism, right? That we need to be all and white supremacy for that matter. I think that we are we are required, especially as, as women, to be all things to all people. And that can't be. You can't see everything from everybody's identity or intersection. And let's be honest, for a lot of us who step into the yoga space, when we're teaching yoga classes, we're teaching from our own perspective, whether that has been privileged, whether that has been able-bodied perspective, whatever it is. So I think a big part of adaptation and equity in classes is knowing your lane, staying in your lane. And when something comes to you that's outside of your area of understanding or, and I'm doing this in air quotes, expertise, to always make sure you refer that out. And I think as people who want to uplift this community, it's important to highlight voices other than our own. I think it's important to be, to understand that we learn in collaboration and community. And when we get called in, called up or called out, whatever language, um, you know, resonates with you, that we stop, listen and learn in those situations. I mean, that was the first thing I learned as a kid when something went wrong. Stop, take a breath, locate yourself in the space, listen, what am I hearing? What do I think I'm hearing? What is actually being said to me? And what can I learn from the situation in inviting people into their own well-being? So a big question I ask everybody on the podcast is, I'm moving away from the concept of wellness because I think it's become super, um, I don't know, capitalized, everybody's into wellness, well, well, wellness, it's become this huge commodity. And it's something that actually started in the 60s and has been just been making people kind of responsible for their own wellness and not looking into the structural causes that keep people from being well. So I'd like to switch my perspective to well-being. What can I do moment to moment um, that doesn't require a whole lot of money that can take care of myself without actually um, investing in the, dare I say it, um, capitalistic <laughs> wellness industry. What is the difference to you between wellness versus well-being? Yeah, I think that you, you know, pinpoint a very important um, matter where there is this focus on making each person accountable for themselves, which does make sense because we can only control ourselves. And yet also what's been missing for a while maybe is that, you know, broader view of the structural inequalities, racism, misogyny, um, that, you know, we cannot solve as individuals. So I think that it's kind of about looking at them um, at the overlap, which is why I've kind of switched to talking about self-love and community care. And to be honest, I don't really see that they're divided because when I take care of myself, that also is an example for other people and other people learn to do that. And then also when we take care of others, oftentimes we'll see that, for example, is volunteering altruistic? I don't think so because it also makes me feel great. And sometimes I even feel guilty. I'm like, oh, I like volunteering. Like what a privileged thing that I can spend the time to be the one on the volunteering side and to have the time to do so, right? So I think for me, it's really about, like you said, knowing our own lane. And I always like to you know, share to folks that yoga is not the panacea. And so also asking folks, you know, who come into this space, hey, you know, um, are you working with a therapist? Has that worked for you? 
um, maybe different types of therapy, not just CBT, but also EMDR, which I love and I recommend to a lot of folks. Uh, can um, I just stop you there for a second? Can you elaborate on what EMDR is for our listeners who might not be familiar? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I get a disclaimer. I'm not a therapist, but it is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, I want to say. Um, maybe I should double check just so I don't give the wrong information. <laughs> um, but it is an eye movement um, type of therapy. And um, it's really often used for trauma, which is kind of what we're talking a lot about today, right? So yeah. eye movement desensitize desensitization and reprocessing. Yes, I think that is what I said, but I will say it again yeah. in case I got it wrong because I make mistakes and maybe I did say Absolutely, it wrong. absolutely. Um, so yeah, again, and also acknowledging that, um, I always acknowledge too that therapy is very, um, it's very like science-based and very, which is great, I believe in science, but I think it's very Western science-based. So For I sure. also do check in with folks, hey, like, you know, um, have you looked into Ayurveda? Have you thought about acupuncture? Um, have you thought about cupping? And again, you know, with a grain of salt, depending on the person, because those things do cost money. Um, so if it's appropriate, I bring it up. If folks are interested, if they tell me they have certain issues. Um, so I do like to offer those modalities as well. I know that um, I have a friend in Japan who is a black Reiki uh, healer. And so that's not something I personally use, but people may find helpful. Um so I think kind of like bringing those different um, healing modalities really kind of plays into more community care, kind of, like I said, amplifying other people, other teachers, and then also kind of, you know, talking to folks and be like, hey, you know, it's not your fault and it's not an individual thing that you have to figure all these out, which is why I like to have not just one-on-one -on -one coaching, but also like the group space of like 10 to 12. So and that's kind of how I approach it. Um, it's not a perfect solution, but I will say that's something I'm really proud of and that brings me a lot of joy is that um, my circles are usually like over 90% people of color, nice. um, which is really rare. And even other, yeah. you know, East Asians or black folks will come in and be like, yeah, like, wow, like a lot of the East Asian teachers I know in the yoga space, their clients are mostly white. Um, yeah. So I'm really proud that that's not the case for me. I think it's, it says a lot to providing a space that feels, um, not that I believe 100% in safe spaces, in that you right. don't know what's going to trigger somebody, mm -hmm. you yeah. don't know what's going to activate somebody. Like It could be a smell, it could be a, a color, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. But creating brave spaces where people of color um, can show up and feel like, okay, I'm not the only one. Okay. There's a, a, a queer woman leading. So I, I feel like I'm seen. I feel like a lot of these intersections are missed in the wellness industry and that people think that these are white, that wellness is a white, a white thing that as, as people of color, we don't need wellness. I think it was really interesting how your parents didn't believe in therapy. I had a very similar situation when I reached out for help and my parents really felt it was more like an embarrassment. And uh, later unpacking that, my parents kind of felt it was another way for non-white folks to look down, white folks and non-black folks to kind of look down on black people as being weak or as mm -hmm. being, um, unable to handle stress 
not taking into consideration walking through the world in a racialized identity creates a whole lot of stress. And something that came up for me when you were talking about self-love, um, I want to know some of the ways that you help people come back to that feeling of learning to um, accept themselves. I had an interesting conversation today with a friend of mine whose daughter uh, came home from school and she, her, her dad is white, her mother is black and came home from school and said, I don't want to be brown like mommy anymore. I don't like my curly hair anymore. I want to be white like daddy. And I mean, she came home from daycare and said this. So we're talking about somebody who's three, four years old, already having this self-hatred starting for her. And I think it's important for us to start thinking about how our own actions might be influencing our children. How do we go about teaching self-love to anybody at any age? Yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing that with me. And that is, you know, really sad to hear, of course, but not surprising yeah. for those of us who are paying attention. And if it's surprising to you, you're, you need to open your eyes, open your ears. Um, yeah, definitely. Oh, where do I even start? I feel like there's so many talking points here. Like, I also... Just jump kid, in. There's, yeah. I also, as a kid, was like, hey, I want to be, you know, blonde and blue-eyed, right? True. Think, me too. Um, some of these things, there are small, but, you know, the basics of, I guess, seeing people on screen who look like us, which is, like, not the most important thing, but it is helpful because I think a lot of people do learn from television, especially, again, immigrants learning English. Um, yeah. And having a Barbie doll with black hair was really, like, I think helpful for me and things like that. I think in terms of kids, actually, I do work with kids. My youngest... Um, client slash student is in the first grade and I've known her since she was in preschool so I think starting that really early on um, is really important having these discussions at school and also empowering language so I think a lot of what I see is adults um, putting themselves down so just like let's say I'm at the grocery store and I hear a mom say oh I'm so stupid and her daughter or son or child yeah. is watching and mm -hmm. they learn to use that same language and so what I really practice a lot with folks is um, either verbally and or in journal form, I have folks practice, you know, writing, um, how do we reframe? So instead of saying, I'm stupid, maybe we could say, shoot, I made a mistake. I'm upset at myself, yeah. but I also acknowledge that I'm allowed to make mistakes. I give myself permission to F up um, and to catch ourselves when we say these things. So I have people that I work with um, practice that. Or, for example, if my friends say um, that kind of thing about themselves, I'll say, you know, I don't think that you're stupid. I think that you made a mistake and that you just are being human. And that happens to me all the time. And so not that I want to make it about myself, but it can be helpful to say, like, you know, someone that admires you and you acknowledge, hey, like, I also, like, you know, make errors. That, that can be helpful for folks to hear. Um, depending on the person maybe bringing in celebrities that make mistakes, if that's going to speak to them. Yeah, um, sure. Sometimes bringing in uh, comedians, kind of depending on what their, like, learning style is. Sometimes I bring in videos or podcasts or, you know, humor, things like that. Um, but I think, yeah, definitely starting at um, a young age with young uh, humans. I also try to think about um, my language and trying not to be too gendered. 
So making sure that when I compliment young um, female presenting bodies that I'm not just saying pretty and beautiful, I'm also saying strong and fast and smart and thoughtful and considerate um, and commenting a lot maybe on their personality, how they're so thoughtful to ask me about my day. Because it's, yeah, like when an elementary school student's like, oh, hey, Miss Ling, or hey, Jessica, depending on what they call me, you know, how was your weekend? I'm like, oh, it's so kind of you to ask. Thank you for thinking of me, too. Um, you're such a thoughtful individual or, you know, you're so, like, fun to talk to. Um, so really kind of bring that into the space and making sure we're not only thinking about how a kid looks, um, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So yeah, I think that is, is really powerful. Why I like working with kids? Because, yes, like, you know, and I like to work with people in their 20s and 30s, too, um, of all ages, really. Like, I have clients who are in their 70s. But I think that when you start at a young age, that, like, carries with them throughout their life. Um, exactly. And then hopefully they can influence other kids around them, too. And I'm hoping that if we learn these kind of techniques and talking to each other and how we present or how we think about ourselves, that we start a whole new way, right? Like I, I'm, I'm of the Gen X generation and we grew up in a time where everybody was a princess or everybody was a prince or, you know, we had very gendered language and very yeah. specific uh, stereotypes and our parents uh, had a very, you know, very significant type of way that they they live their life through gender roles. And I think it's really great that the your generation and the generation coming up behind you has these new tools to talk about who we are. Like, I just remember reading an article before I was having, right before my children were born, um, thinking about, okay, how am I going to speak to my children so that they feel empowered from the beginning? Because that previous story about that little girl coming home from schooling saying she no longer wanted to be brown is heartbreaking. And you and I both acknowledge that we had those feelings too, especially when you go to a place where you're surrounded by everybody else who looks different from you. So if everybody looks white and you are the odd person out and people are asking you about your culture and not like kind ways, making fun of what you bring to school for lunch. My parents always meet. I'm West Indian. My folks are from Barbados. And so I always had these really, what I think of as cool lunches now, but when I was a little kid, they certainly weren't cool lunches. I was always the kid who had something wrapped in tinfoil. You know, everybody else had these cool lunch boxes. So you always kind of feel like that odd person out, which I think is why it's important to make sure at home we're celebrating the culture and that they're being exposed to other folks that look like them. And that was a big thing with me raising my kids. I didn't want them to feel like the odd person out and people constantly, you know, um, pointing out their curly hair or the color of their skin or, or things like that. I wanted them to make sure that they felt grounded in who they were at home and finding ways I think to do that at a very young age helps us to, I think, project that energy out there. Right. And I, I spent a lot of time, my kids would make fun of me. I'd be like, you know, looking out for parents with kids who are also, you know, um, mixed culture or biracial or however you identify and make sure that our kids could play together and that my kids had a lot of different kinds of friends who had different identities so that they could see the world wasn't only white. Because if you, if you are, if you are socialized by white folks, I find if you're growing up being socialized by white folks, it's very easy to default into hating your non-white self mm-hmm. and giving our kids tools to understand that your culture is valid and that when we're talking about 
um, you know, historically excluded identities or marginalization that we frame it from the point that other people are doing this to us and that being non-white is not a bad thing. And I think that's, for me, the first place I had to start because I kept waiting for my boys to come home and tell me they didn't want to be brown anymore. And that was my biggest fear is to start that self-loathing so young because that's what I came from. And I think it led me down this path to allow a lot of other things to happen that if I were stronger in my sense of self, perhaps wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I think um, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and, you know, your kids are really lucky that you've been so thoughtful and, you know, hopefully that, um, yeah, hopefully they feel that, you know, in, inside, you know, and you just don't know yeah, until, until they're I sitting mean, to their, with their therapist 10 years from now. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> or next, or next week. Right, who knows, right. right? And also, you know, like you're also a human being also learning and yeah. no one's giving you a guidebook. So I know that, um, I, I could, spend 10 hours talking about what my parents did well and 10 hours talking about what they didn't do well. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, um, yeah, again, I think growing up with um, different people is really great. Like I know in my neighborhood, it wasn't just white. There was a family from like Iran, um, uh, Middle Eastern folks, um, folks with like, you know, a red dot at the center of their forehead. Um, and, you know, going to school with kids who spoke different languages. Um, that was really, really powerful. And one of my favorite things I think about growing up and why I think I have still stayed where I am, despite um, LA being honestly a bit segregated, um, mm -hmm. but it is a lot more diverse than a lot of the US. And also when I thought about perhaps moving to Taiwan, which is where my dad's family is from, Taiwan is lovely, but quite homogenous. Um, mm -hmm. and so it kind of has kept me here because that's something that's really important to me. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I'm saying I'm a lot, but, and also I think that's my okay. own folks, even my mom is from Hong Kong, my dad's from Taiwan, and it's actually not too common that you see folks from those countries get together. Huh, it's usually more common that, you know, people from Hong Kong are with other Hong Kong folks and Taiwan and Taiwan folks. Um, there's definitely a lot of, um, uh, problematic issues of this phrase Taiwan number one, which is like oh. not great. Yeah. Um, people need to stop saying that. Um, mm. <laughs> and there's this whole conflict with like Taiwan versus China and such, which mm -hmm. is like, a whole can of worms. Yes. Uh, so I think even within my own family, even though both of my parents are Asian and both of their family lineage goes to China, um, the fact that my parents are not from China and that they came to America in their 20s um, that has had a really positive impact on me. I, that, you know what? I, I'm envious. I'm not going to lie. I'm envious of your uh, upbringing in a very multicultural, multi-ethnic space. And mm -hmm. I think it gives you great insight into communicating with others because um, you've had exposure to other types of folks. And I think that's important for us if we're out there raising new humans, baby humans, young humans. If we're out there raising folks that we make sure we're creating a diversified um, experience for them. Uh, one time I, I had an opportunity to speak at a conference and uh, I got into a cab and we were driving to the conference 
And it was right before the uh, 2016 election. Mm. And my um, my driver was African-American. And I, him and I were having a conversation. For those of you who don't know, I'm in Canada. So I'm not African-American. And my experience is different living in Canada than living in the U.S. But the intersection is the same at, you know, colonized countries and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were talking about the importance of us as Black folks uh, of that intersection, making sure that our children were exposed to a lot of different things. And one thing that my driver said at the time that I thought was really interesting is that we want to make sure that when we take our children to multicultural um, events, that they're not staring because they've never seen somebody who has looked different from them before, which is something my kids had seen a lot when they were little, right? My son, Nathan, would always say to me, I hate it when kids stare at me. And I would mm. always think to myself, how is it that you have managed to live your whole life? And I live in a pretty multicultural city. It's very multicultural for its size. There's a lot of um, diverse cultures and there's all kinds of things going on here. How is it that you've managed to insulate yourself your entire life that your children has never seen somebody brown mm. or Asian? or East Asian, like how is it you can insulate yourself? And especially this next generation coming up, they're coming up in a time when the demographic of North America is gonna shift. So in another 22 years, it's no longer gonna be a white country where white is the, is the dominant culture, it's gonna be a brown country where brown people outnumber white folks. And I think that's why everybody is working so hard. When I say everyone, people who believe in white supremacy or in the delusion of white supremacy is working so hard to roll back um, the rights of folks who are not white. And that's gonna have an incredible effect on well-being and wellness. For some reason, what comes to mind is I feel like called to kind of speak out to anyone who's listening who's East Asian. I feel that we should, and I don't usually use the word should, but we should kind of think about the fact that there are other Asians besides East Asians because I think that being in closer proximity to white privilege and being kind of, you know, our parents, like my parents, having us assimilate, it's important for us, yes, like as parents, as kids, as humans, um, to, like you said, be exposed and to expose people. So I know something my parents haven't done too well is I've called them out on most of their friends and clients are Asian and East Asian at that, Mm -hmm. not South Asian, not Central Asian. Um, And so many of us forget Central Asian folks. Um, I think that Mm -hmm. that um, would be really good for more parents to kind of tap into, I think. Again, I'm not a parent, so take it with a grain of salt but I do think my parents could have could have and could currently befriend more diverse folks um because even though Mm. I saw kids that were more diverse like my parents were not hanging out diverse people so I think that's definitely an issue and um yeah just being um, more supportive of you know our South Asian um siblings and such and yeah I don't think that my parents really exposed me much to black culture like I know I only just um, recently went to CAM, which is the California African American Museum in Los Angeles, Tongva Land. Um, and yeah, I super recommend folks go there because it is on the same uh, spot as the California Science Museum and the Natural History Museum, but it is the least attended from what I've seen. And 
I'm sure mm. the stats prove that. Like when I went, it was so empty. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's important for us to know about that history and to hear more about it. It definitely was not talked about in my family. Like, I'm the one who had to like talk to my parents about like black folks when I was dating a black guy in um, college. And, you know, I guess like on the lucky side, quote unquote lucky, like my parents right. let me have black people over at my house. And there are still mm. a lot of Asian folks whose parents do not allow that. And that is right. like, we need to move past that. Like we need to make strides. And I think that um, people in similar positions as I, we need to talk to our parents about these things. Mm -hmm. um, I know that my sister and I, during the Black Lives Matter protests, we were on the phone for like four to six hours on the weekends, like talking to my parents about their anti-blackness. And I, mm -hmm. that is something I do not see enough of. Um, mm -hmm. It's not enough just to talk to strangers who are probably not going to listen to you. Like we need to talk to our partners and our friends and our families. Um, I wanna see more people doing that. I agree. I think when we talk about an inclusion practice, and I've moved away from using the word inclusion in terms of it still feels like gatekeeping to me, that I have this thing that I have and I get to include you and maybe I'll include you and maybe I'll include you. It still feels like inclusion means that white spaces get to include other people who are not white. So that's what inclusion, whenever I hear it, it jars me into that thinking. Whereas equity is how do we create spaces where everybody feels welcome or can see themselves represented in those spaces. And I think that's really important to have those conversations because being outside of what's considered the norm, and again, I'm putting that in air quotes, has an intentional effect on our, our well-being. Our, we see increased risks of you know heart disease and stress-related diseases and chronic diseases that are inflamed by this constant need um, to be fighting or to be in fight or flight mode because you never know when you're going to go out and run into somebody who is not liking you based on your skin color and your ethnicity. And as we saw with uh, COVID coming, we saw a rise in, in Asian hate. And that's something that you have to go out into the, the world and be conscious of all the time. So we need these wellness spaces so people can come in and finally relax. They don't have mm. to worry about having to hear, um, I don't even call them microaggressions because they're macroaggressions. Whenever somebody mm. makes a comment, it has an intense effect on your well-being. So moving through the world is really hard for a lot of folks. What are some of the things you do to help your clients move through the world? Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying. I think what helps my clients move through the world is, one, me acknowledging that what they're feeling is valid, which sounds really simple, but I think a lot of us grew up with our feelings and thoughts just being pushed Absolutely. to the side told mm -hmm. that they're not important and again if you have parents like mine who wanted you to assimilate and get along just telling you to go along just, and get that along. is just part of it yeah yeah so i think um well number one is i always think about safety so i do tell my clients hey you know like why you know i want to validate you speaking up in spaces if you have the energy and the spoons mm -hmm. but also first of all are you in a safe spot physically mentally emotionally to do so and I also try to, you know, encourage folks that, yes, they can speak up and I champion them to do so. But also sometimes 
I feel that I see, and a lot, most of my clients, um, if not all, there's one that's mixed white, um, but basically all my clients are people of color, and I always kind of remind them, or, or I don't want to say teach, but kind of share with them that they are not Google, and it's not their job to teach yeah. people, and all we need to time. learn to say more, like, hey, Google it, like, it's yeah. on the internet, like, you have access, like, go to the library if you don't have yeah. a computer, right? Um, so I think especially for, I see a lot of East Asian women who date white men, which mm-hmm. is like a whole thing, especially in Los Angeles. And it's mm. like, hmm, are you having to teach your cisgender white boyfriend or husband about this? Like, mm. you should maybe enroll from classes, you know, mm-hmm. get a coach, like pay, pay people to learn that because I don't know why you're dating your oppressor, but, you know, he needs to learn. Um, and again, I definitely do date a lot of cisgender men. So I also, you know, send them articles and books and recommendations, but I am not going to hold their hand. So, you know, just, you know, the fact that we're even talking about race in, you know, on a topic of well-being, I think for a lot of people that is pretty radical, actually. And with a lot of white folks listening, if you're not talking about race, like that's like a total huge chapter that you're missing out on. Um, that plays into everything. So yeah, I think that just telling my clients, Hey, like it's okay to not teach people and to yeah. give people all the answers. And, um, yeah. And then again, just if they have the capacity, if they're positions of more privilege to look into cultures beyond their own, because I think even people of color, we can kind of just like know about our culture, quote unquote, but mm-hmm. like again, I was not exposed much to like black culture growing up, and so I need to take it upon myself to seek that out, um, and then to teach my parents and things like that. One of my teachers, uh, Dr. Gail Parker, always says inclusion means that white folks should also include themselves in the conversation. That white folks should include themselves in the conversation by doing their own work and figuring out in what ways white supremacy. Um, makes them feel entitled to have non-white folks constantly either holding their hand through the process of learning about race or constantly educating themselves. That it's just, you feel really comfortable to roll up on somebody who's not white and demand them to teach you certain things. I often see it in like social media spaces. If you post something that doesn't um, resonate with somebody who's white and then they come on there and they try to lecture you as to, Um, what you're saying and have no concept that this is not a space where they should be centering themselves. So these are things that some of our uh, non-people of color can look into. When do I feel so entitled to center myself in wellness spaces and who, you know, benefits from you centering yourself in wellness spaces and who doesn't benefit, which is why I think it's so cool just that your space Um, is the majority um, folks of color, people of color, non-white folks in your spaces, because that takes away that element of having to be constantly educating people and that people who are not white being reduced down to our labor for white folks, which has been from the beginning of time for for all of us, um, that we, we exist to be labor for white folks and to come into healing spaces like yours and actually relax. Um, 
I can't tell you how meaningful it has been for me to cultivate friendships that are multi-dimensional and multicultural so that when I do invite my friends to disrupt white spaces, I feel really insulated in that I'm not the only odd person out. And then I can actually enjoy the space because I feel like, okay, I've got my group around me. So people are less likely to roll up and think that they can demand my emotional labor because they like the color of my hair or whatever it is this week that they like about mm-hmm. blackness or Asianness or South Asianness mm-hmm. or East Asianness or you name it, <laughs> whatever yeah. it is they find fascinating in the moment that it impacts our well-being as, as people who are not white to constantly be expected to be in service to white folks. Absolutely. I also think that most of my spaces are women or non-binary and I still do see a lot of as you said, non-micro microaggressions, a lot of aggressions from men of color, to be honest, and maybe uh, I can yeah, say like say East it. Asian men. Like, I mean, uh, I don't have like the highest hopes for East Asian men, and uh, I think that they have a lot of learning to do. Um, and I mean, for example, my dad. Like, I have this post on my Instagram where I called my dad and I talked to him about his misogyny and. You know, I talked to my mom about how she deserves better and, you know, things like that. And so, and, you know, my parents are both East Asian, so for folks who don't know the context. Um, and, you know, even, again, myself calling myself out on, like, you know, I've date like, cis het men a lot. And, you know, why is that? And is that what I'm comfortable with? Is that, you know, and I think also that tends to make me feel safer as a five, one Asian, visibly Asian woman in, um, these times of heightened anti-Asian crimes, I do feel a little safer and that's pretty unfair. So it's like giving myself grace, but also be like, okay, Jessica, like what's going on? Exactly. What's (laughs) going on? Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's very convoluted and nuanced and all of that. And much is life. Mm hmm. Yeah, I just want to, like, I guess, clarify for any white folks who are like, okay, but, like, we want to learn. Okay, so you want to learn. No one's against you learning, but what we're saying is don't expect us to teach you for free. And it's not about money, per se, but it's just, like, we live in a capitalist society. Like, you pay people. It's also emotional labor. Yeah, like, you pay people to learn the piano or to fix your dryer or to do the plumbing. So it's the exact same thing. We're not saying don't get your dryer fixed. We're not saying don't, you know, learn about black or Asian culture. We're just saying, don't expect it for free and don't expect it when you want it, how you want it, and exactly these like terms that you have. So that is my clarification for folks who are like, but I want to learn. Okay, we totally yeah. want you to learn too. Totally. It, it benefits all of us if you take up learning, but that you do it on your own terms. Like you do it. I had a, I was in a training not too long ago and I had to school someone because they othered me in this training and I wasn't Mm. in the mood. I wasn't in the mood. I just Mm. wasn't in the mood. Mm. Some days like there's a go along, get along vibe Mm. because you're in a white (laughs) space and you're the only white person in the space or black person in the white space. So sometimes you're just like, is this what I want to do today? Like, do I want to be uncomfortable for the rest of this training because I made the white girl cry because she tried to touch my hair or whatever it is that she did? And I had this really interesting conversation because people often think they're my friend if we happen to have 
a casual relationship. Like if I said hi to you somewhere, oh, we're friends, we're not. If you haven't been to my house, if you don't have my text message, if you don't have my cell number, we're not friends. If we don't hang out outside of work, we're not friends. You know, we can be acquaintances, we can be friendly. And I had that situation where I had to call somebody out in a white space and I thought to myself, the rest of this training is gonna be miserable for me because I made the white girl cry. But I got lucky that there was one other black person in the space who came to my defense. Um, so I think, it, it, you know, asking folks to not other folks in public spaces in terms of allowing us all to feel comfortable and to seek out wellness without being, having, as I like to say, my butt cheeks clenched, like I'm just waiting, just <laughs> waiting. I'm uh -huh. squeezing everything together because somebody's going to come at me and then it's going to pull me out of my sense of fun or relaxation. Know this, um, folks, that if you are the odd person out in any situation, it always feels a little bit scary, a little bit dangerous, a little bit uncomfortable. What can you do in that space to not continue up to other folks and to make that space a little bit more equitable? How can you not stare or engage people in a way that feels equitable as opposed to expecting folks to just assimilate? I think honestly, the onus there is on the facilitators who invited you. And if people are inviting you, they need to make sure you're not the only black person or the only white person. I mean, sorry, the only woman or female presenting person like that is really not your job. And the fact that like you're if you're in spaces that are like the token black person, you know, so when people email me, yep. I'd be like, I might say, <laughs> who else hey, is you know, coming? <laughs> exactly. Who else is coming? <laughs> hey, I know these people coming? that you can invite, like yeah. you should invite Diane Bondi and all these people, you know? And so I think, you know, definitely, um, pushing back by email, like, you know, saying, Hey, like, and that's what I've been doing recently is talking to other folks, um, who are coaches or speakers and like exchanging referrals and also inside tips of, Oh, you know, you worked for this company. How was it? Like, did they pay you on time? Yeah. How did they yeah. treat you? Et cetera, et cetera. Communicating with each other. Yeah. For so sure. I've been setting up like one-on-ones with folks who are like South Asian, one person who's trans and being like, Hey, like, I spoke for this company. I spoke for this hotline. Let me recommend you because I'm not trans and you are, and you can speak on yeah. it. I'm not black yeah. and you are, you can speak on it. So pull people up with you, you know, like don't, yes. just, you know, yes. um, focus on your own success and yes. like share all of the resources. What I have to say. Yes. And yeah. I remember I was on that um, IG live with you that you were talking about this incident and you, I honestly, like, I mean, I, what do I even say, man? I, I was saying in this that like that woman needs to pay for your facial that you got, which is what we were talking about. I remember this. Right. And, you know, I remember yeah. you were laughing and I was like, I'm not joking. And you were like, I'm not joking either. And I was like, I, I had half a mind. I was like, I should just send Diane like, like a hundred bucks to get yeah. the facial. But I was also like, yo, like we need white people to step up. Yes! Like, you know what I mean? Like most It's not people, your job. It's her job. Most yeah. of the donors and sponsors that have like, you know, funded like, um, spots for people in, you know, the groups and the programs are women and yeah. East Asian women who are yeah. like, already making less, you know, yeah. than white people. And yeah. so now I'm like messaging people being like, Hey, do you know you white folks? Yeah. who will donate, who yeah. will 
make reparations because and then of course people are like oh like i'm an east asian woman can i donate and i'm like you can but that's not the point point and like yes i'm not going to asking like black people to donate i'm like yeah maybe the most is i'm like talking to black people and being like hey do you know white folks or if you have white partners do they have friends who will like show up donate some money yeah Yeah. like ride for us you know right that's what What i'm saying what is it that rihanna says let him pull up for you yeah Come on. Yeah, exactly. I think she said that at awards shows. Yeah, Pull up so. for folks. That's, that's, I, uh, that's what we yeah, need. So. That is 100% what we need. This has been super fun to talk to you, Jess, as we roll up on the hour. I'm glad we got it all sorted out. We came out with a little bit of a rocky start, but we got into it. So for folks who would like to work with you and seek out your services, where can they find you? And of course, I'm going to link all the resources to just in the show notes. So don't be scared. You'll have all the resources. But for people who are listening now, what, where can we find you? What's coming up on your agenda? What do you recommend? Let us know how we can support your work. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for this, uh, the space to share. So yeah, so I am on Instagram, pretty active at Jess Beyond the Body. That's J-E-S-S-B-E-Y-O-N-D-T-H-E-B-O-D-Y. That's you got so it. hard to say it. <laughs> you got uh, it. On yes. the spot, and again, spelling is hard. share it. So yeah, yes. I'm also accessible via email at the same, um, the same handle. So Jess Beyond the Body at gmail.com. Um, again, this is not an opportunity to ask me free questions, um, which hopefully you understood from this podcast. If you listen, I'm hoping if you follow um, either of us, you should know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Same with Diane. I know she does uh, coaching and do not slide into her DMs just asking for free labor because that's not cool. No. Uh, so yeah, email, Instagram. I really want to say that I, for all the faults that Instagram has, I do like it because it's very, I feel like it's more intimate, more personable. So I do like that a lot. And, um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, yeah, I want to acknowledge today is the one-year anniversary of the Atlanta incident. Um, so, I don't know, I just feel that I need to say it. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't think I have time to go into it too much. And I'm purposely using the word incident so as not to unnecessarily trigger folks. So that is not me, like, putting it under the rug, but words have meaning. So I'm going to say Atlanta incident. Um, I think the way that folks can really show up and support is – to recommend me to your university or alma mater or place of work to be a speaker, to come up, because those companies are the ones that can afford the labor. And then hopefully you can also jump in and, you know, get those sessions for free, you know, make it a company perk, you know, instead yeah. of in your own pocket. So I think that's really what I'm looking for right now, something that's really working well for me. So Um, you know, if you cannot personally afford it, recommend me to someone that, you know, uh, you know, someone at, you know, these companies that are big names, plastered all over billboards, shout my name out, email me, introduce me in an email. So yeah, thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Diane. And I think that's pretty much it. Um, I do like all you're going to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I like to go by Jessica for business purposes. So if you're just meeting me. For the first time, I go by Jessica. If we start to kind of like, you know, roll into, vibe. yeah, that vibe, Jess may may come up. So uh, I hope it's okay that I was calling you Jess. I feel like we had a relationship over Instagram. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You and I kind of like chatted online. Yeah, it's yeah, confusing because yeah, yeah. my handle says Jess, so that's why right. I'm to, you know, put right. it out there. 
Sure, uh, sure. And then also, this is like I should have said it at the intro, but my pronouns are she, they. So yeah, that's pretty much yeah. it. That's wonderful. Always got a lot more to say, but I'm always wrapping up. <laughs> up. And we can continue this conversation through our Instagram. We'll have Jessica, Jess. Uh, she they back on the podcast i want to thank you so much today for being a part of the intentional well-being podcast thanks everybody make sure that if you found this podcast helpful that you share it everywhere that you can so that people have a feeling that wellness and well-being can be for them as well please go to apple like rate and comment and we'll see you next time Hello, everyone. I just want to thank you so very much for being part of my podcast community here and listening to the people I love to talk to and being part of the world that celebrates diversity, equity, and inclusion here on the Intentional Wellbeing Podcast, where we're going to dive into some deep topics. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go over to Apple Podcasts and rate it, give it a thumbs up, like it, share it, comment. It really helps this podcast out. And I want to platform folks who don't ordinarily get platformed and share the stories of so many of us in the world of wellness and well-being. I want to thank you so much. You can find this podcast anywhere where podcasts are broadcast. And you can always contact me through my Instagram pages at Diane Bondi Yoga Official, or you can shout out to me at Diane at DianeBondiYoga.com. Thanks so much for being part of my community and I'll catch you next time.